I look at it as a hurricane offshore. We're seeing all the potential pads. We just don't know where it's going to hit. Well, now we're starting to feel the winds much stronger. What are the winds? Well, EV sales. What about them? The big question is, will the customers buy? That's the big question. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Cliff Banks is an automotive analyst, journalist, and founder of The Banks Report. In this conversation, we discuss whether a Carvana bankruptcy is off the table, will used car valuations actually crash at any point, how AI will get integrated into your car, will public auto group stock prices decline from here, and how automotive media is evolving faster than ever. But before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Fullpath. Wasted data is a serious issue in automotive, but data is the key to driving revenues, which means some dealers out there are just ignoring a gold mine that is staring them in the face. Let's face it, most dealerships are completely overrun with data silos. None of the data sources are integrated with each other, leaving the data as a jumbled mess instead of a clean set that could be turning into cash. Fullpath solves this by gathering, cleaning, and sorting your data into one platform so you can use it to speak to your customers' needs with killer AI-powered marketing campaigns. My friends over at Fullpath are breaking barriers, and I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. I believe in their product and more importantly, in their mission to help dealers grow. Fullpath can help you turn your data into dollars. Find them at fullpath.com. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Cliff Banks on the CDG podcast. Cliff, how's it going? It is great to be here, Mr. Car Dealership Guy. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. I'm, I'm excited about this. I don't think there's, and I don't say this lightly, but many people that have been around the block in this industry have seen as much as you have. And I'm also just excited to chat about your media background, which is, you know, very up my alley nowadays. So, you know, yes. before we kick that off, can you just give us your background? Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got to this point in your career? Well, like you said, I've been around for a while. As you can tell from my gray hairs, my wife consistently points out to me, uh, but uh, it's 33 years now in the industry at some level. Uh, 23 years ago, I joined Ward's Auto uh, and uh, ended up uh, over a 10-year period morphing from a journalist to editorial director. Did I Wait, stay- what even, what was Ward's Auto 30 okay, years so ago? Okay, so wardsauto.com, which is still there, if you get it, I mean, it's one of the oldest automotive media publishing companies in the world. It's- uh, uh, it's gone through some iterations, uh, Ward's Auto World, Ward's Dealer Business, Ward's Engine Vehicle Technology Updates were some of the print publications that they had for years. Uh, I was the editorial director of all the retail publications and, and events that we did. The first article I ever wrote for them was an EV-related article. Uh, Ward's Engine Vehicle Technology Update was the newsletter, and it was it was printed in Ward's Auto World, but it was about the Ford... Uh, Ford Thinkmobile, which they were doing a partnership with a company the out of Norway. Ford Thinkmobile. Yeah, so what, what is that? Tell us back about that. In, uh, to, oh, it's a glorified golf cart, essentially. But uh, we're going back to 2000. <laughs> that was yeah. the first story ever I ever uh, was published with. So, so how did you transition from there to to the Banks Report? Which is well, I you know they had Ward's Automotive Report, which was a weekly newsletter, and. I always, I, I think as I started growing in my career awards, I started seeing the influence of capital and investment, the investment community on the automotive space. I think, you know, kind of the aha moment came when, you know, I broke the story that Michael Dell was trying to buy the Asbury Automotive Group at the time, trying to put a deal together. And, you know, there's a whole story involved with that. But uh, 
you know, I really started paying attention. And obviously with Bill Gates and Eddie Lambert that were involved with AutoNation. So I started uh, thinking along those lines and realizing that the industry didn't have anything that was focused on covering the retail space from that perspective. So I kind of had this concept of the bank's report or something along those lines. And what was the purpose behind the bank's report? Well, the bank's report was to really, I, look, it was- It was like a car dealership guy in like magazine format? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was more, yeah, it was, it was a B2B analysis newsletter, subscription-based, so we charge money, providing um, analysis. I started covering the dealer buy-sell market. So I was the first one to actually start accumulating all that buy-sell data. Now you're seeing oh, it. Automotive News is doing it. You know, you have the broker. So, you know, Alan Haig has his report. Uh, Nancy, or I, I said Nancy Kerrigan. Aaron Kerrigan has hers, which uh, those, those are phenomenal reports. Um, but, you know, I, I was the first one, I think, in the industry to start compiling that data and aggregating it and starting to put some analysis behind it. Um, started doing the same thing on the M&A tech side. So that was the purpose uh, of that. And I, listen, I had no clue what I was doing. None. I mean, it was, I was a media guy, you know, and I, I was an editorial director, but, you know, I, I just, I, I knew my analysis was sound and I thought there was a market would be a market for that. And there was, there was, and is, and uh, leveraged my, you know, long time oh, so in the industry. You basically, you started aggregating all this like buy, sell data, pretty much all the M&A transactions. And then you package that up and you sold that as information to other dealers, I'm assuming, right? No, no, no. I, anyone that wanted to subscribe to the, or, to or the anyone that wants report. to subscribe. So they yeah. paid, yeah, they paid, paid a smart subscription. So a lot of investment firms, OEMs, dealer principals, vendors wanted to get their hands on that data because there was no place where they could see or find, you know, in terms of their sale for their sales teams, who's. Who is buying or selling? Yeah, and and also like price discovery, people want to know like what's what's going on out there. It makes so sense. By the way, it seems like it's a very similar audience to mine. I have a pretty diversified audience, but it's comprised of you know dealers, vendors, consumers, investors. I would say those yes. are like the four biggest buckets, right? Um, and that's why you'll see I'm very deliberately like to talk about you know sometimes I'll talk about B two B topics, sometimes I'll talk about consumer topics. Sometimes I'll tell you what's the best deal. Sometimes I'll talk about, you know, what's happening in the car business. It's also like a very diversified format like that. Yeah, you're you're much more diverse than even what I am or want to be, actually. I uh, I don't have that kind of bandwidth anymore. Well, it's funny you say that because, like, there's a thing, right? On one hand, in order to grow your reach meaningfully, and when I say meaningfully, I mean by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, you have to appeal to consumers as well. You have to. Yes, Right. But right. there's no doubt about it that the richer content that's also tougher to find elsewhere is what's going to appeal B2B dealers, vendors, investors. Right. Because anyone, you know, at the end of the day, like anyone could try to aggregate consumer focused content. I mean, if you Google like car buying tips, like there's a million people that have tried to do that. I don't even think that's interesting. And that's why I don't really talk about that. It just doesn't interest me. You know, you'll see me talk about like best deals because that's super yes. actionable and practical. But like, Car buying tips, all that. I'm just, I, you know, I say go find like the other fifty thousand people on Google that do that. But I think that like you, that, like, you bring niche. a you bring a different perspective to that whole conversation, and I think you you've done a an incredible job. I've watched you from the beginning. I mean, you've done an incredible job at growing that audience in talking to that diverse audience. I'll be honest with you. I just never. I don't. I don't know that I have that capability. I mean, I'm. I, I prefer to be behind the scenes a little more, which is weird because I have a conference, a podcast, <laughs> I've got this, you know, this newsletter, but 
you know, I spend, I like the, the, I'll tell you. I like to be the troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I spend more time. I think, uh, much of my time reading, uh, SEC filings and court documents and, and obscure reports, trying to figure out where, you know, what, what's really going on, uh, behind the scenes, you know, so it, it uh, the, yeah. the, the, I spent a lot of that time, um, researching. I want to jump into something that you mentioned SEC filings. Yes. Sort of breaking my flow over here, but I, I'm really curious to know, you put out a very thoughtful analysis on Carvana the other day. I think a lot Thank of people, you, yeah. I think there's a lot of noise, EVs, Carvana, like there's so much noise. It's hard to really understand like what is going on from someone that's sober, that is not trying to bias someone that's not talking their book, right? So what is the deal with Carvana right now? Can you like give us an explanation of just like, how do they get to the point they're at today? And specifically, there's all this restructuring talk internally, right? Their stock shot up like, I don't know, like 50% in one day. What's the deal with the company nowadays? Well, first of all, it's run by incredibly smart people. I mean, Ernie Garcia Jr. and his son, the third. I mean, look, Ernie the Elder is a long history some bit checkered, admittedly, I think uh, going back uh, several years, but nevertheless, an incredibly intelligent financial whiz, one of the giants in the whole used car space. They've, uh, they have some smart people on their board also. They grew quickly. I'll be honest with you, I don't know that anyone knows exactly what the end game is going to be for Carvana. You can see it going any number of ways. What are those ways? I mean, at some point, would there be an acquisition maybe, uh, if it made sense? It's who could, hard. Who, who could acquire them though? Who could acquire them? Any private equity firm, any publicly, oh, okay. you know, publicly traded, any, anyone, anyone like that could, could make a play. You know, I, you would think it would have happened by now, but maybe there's been conversations along those lines. But again, it's, it's an evolving story. You're dealing with people who are incredibly smart, and even the folks that they've gotten, uh, you know, gotten involved with such, such as Paulo and the others, the other investors, debtors, I guess, or bondholders, they know how to play this game. And it's, you know, I, I think um, they, we've underestimated them. But are they them. playing it at the expense of like the public, the retail, or are they just great at what they do? It seems like the aisles divided between some yeah, people. Like anytime you're a public company, you come in with new technology, you're going to be polarizing, right? You look at Elon Musk with us. You look at any, I mean, any tech companies. It has its investors who are short, you know, who are playing the short game. Uh, you have the true blue believers in the technology. I think it's a mixture. I think it's financial. Look, they're, they're clearly uh, very astute at financial engineering, and they're going to make it work for them. And there's going to be investors that get hurt in the process. I think, uh, is there a bankruptcy pending at some point? It won't be for a couple of years. <laughs> More likely, I, I don't see anything along those lines happening for a while now. They clearly bought themselves time. Did they buy themselves time or did they buy themselves? Are they immortal? Obviously, no company's immortal, but what actually happened here with this latest? I see you're well, they, well, your they bought themselves. Yeah, they, they bought themselves time. They've taken uh, more than a billion. It's, I mean, between one and a half and one billion dollars out of their cost structure over the last year. You know, I mean, the question is, can they? Can they get those costs down enough to where they're selling cars profitably? And they've not shown any ability yet to do that. There's more cuts to be made. I think they have to get things aligned. But again, they're also dealing with operating within a, an environment that has been completely whacked from COVID to uh, all of the chip shortage, playing havoc with 
with new car values. So I think, you know, it's going to take time for some of the stuff to clear up. But they, listen, Carvana's not going away anytime soon. They're going to be part What do you of, mean by that? They're going to be part of the landscape. They're going to be a significant player in the independent uh, used car space and, and for the foreseeable future. Uh, so what's the bull case and what's the bear case here, right? Like in five years, I'm not, not even going too far, but just five years, what's the bull case? They, they're not able to get their cost structures, their costs down to a point where they can sell cars profitably. That's the that's the bear. But what happens, right? Like what well, happens then? Well, then you either you get sold or they, they end up declaring bankruptcy or they go private. Yeah, I think there's, and again, it's hard. Let, let me be even more, I want to I want to go even deeper. Like, yeah, do you sure. think there's a world where they are on like, however you even say it, like unvertically integrate, right? Like where they start shedding off business units and suddenly they don't own their own inventory or they don't do their own reconditioning or they don't do their own logistics. Or do you think there's a world where that happens in order for them to right size their cost structure? Or yeah. like, do they become like a listing site? I don't, I don't know. Again, it just, it depends. The, the big question here is whether they can get their expenses aligned to the point where they can start selling cars profitably. That's the big question mark. If they can do that, it's going to be, it's going to be a fine company, sound company. Uh, if they can't then, but, but again, they're going to have some time here because they've been able to offset, offload some of those interest, huge interest payments over the next two years. Uh, their first debt maturity is until uh, 2028 now. So you move that from 2025 to I think 2028. So they, like I said, they've, they've got some time in this, and I'm sure they're they're looking at it closer. I, I would imagine that at some point there's an acquisition. Wow. But, you know, I again, it's... I mean, I don't know. I, I don't like making predictions on things like this because these stories evolve so quickly or, you know, and over time. I don't think it's necessarily predictions necessarily. I think it's more so really playing out all the different probabilities and scenarios for, for the right. future. Well, I think we can take bankruptcy off the table for the foreseeable future. Got it. I don't think that that's, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to be but part of the- two months ago, that would not have been the case. Is that right? It was certainly open, quite an open question. And it seemed like, and frankly, the, 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 you know, we had this conversation- in December, uh, in Jan you know, we had it at NEDA. I had it with a couple of people who were insiders, so they knew the Carvana story intimately. And it was really the, the conventional wisdom among those of us that watch it closely. Is that it was really just, it was, it was a race against the clocks, so to speak. And then, you know, in March, it started coming out that they were looking at restructuring the debt. So it became a, uh, a sound thesis that they were going to be able to do that at some point. Um, it, it was beneficial to everyone. And that's what we saw happen. He created a win-win. Uh, I think the parties, the debt bondholders and the executives of board at Carvana came together and created a win-win. I think it, you know, at some level, the, the shareholders were hurt in terms of with the stock price. Obviously, the stock price went up. But I think over time, I mean, I think it's better for the shareholders if you have a company that's still in play. And uh, I'm seeing the stock price probably hovering at that 30 to 40 range is probably a good spot for it. You speak with a lot of dealers. What's the sentiment around Carvana right now within the dealer community? Yeah, I mean, listen, dealers are no fan, no fans of the the company. I mean, one, it's advertising, messaging. Anytime a company comes out and starts advertising, making dealers look like crooks or are uh, incompetent, I think yeah, you know the the reaction is pretty predictable there. But I think there's a lot of skepticism too about the model. I mean, Carvana was in a high growth position for the few years before COVID. I think once COVID hit and we got deeper into the 
ramifications of of that that black swan event then you, know, you start seeing that carvana's business model had a you know had a lot of question marks i mean i, I do think they've sort of cleaned up their act with advertising though from at least hey, what i've oh, seen sure what i've have, heard sure they have. but but once you go down that path you're gonna have you know dealers have long memories right? yeah you so, don't forget yeah I do, right. I do agree with that and you know listen i think there's things that dealers can learn from carvana but i'll tell you what there were things i think carvana and i said this that carvana would learn from the franchise dealers and even this established independent used car dealers so look they're part of the landscape and they're going to be there and, and listen it's an online model it's not unlike carmack i mean carmax isn't online well, they are now but it just carvana is another independent used car dealer yeah sticking to the theme of used cars right now there's a ton that's been happening there lately um you know i tweeted about american car center i tweeted about u.s auto sales both you know relatively large independent yes. dealer groups with dozens of stores that have uh, just, you know, gone under and like the span of hours or days, I mean, at least from what we know, I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff that happened behind the scenes. Of course, Sonic Echo Park, publicly traded company, they shut down a couple stores here in like the Northeast. Yeah. I think 14 total is, it's 14 total. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for the used car dealer? Like, wh why is this happening right now? What's your take on this? Well, I'll try to keep it somewhat at a high level here, but uh, yeah, it's just everyone's trying to adjust. I mean, it, certainly interest rates have gone up significantly. I think that hurts to buy here, pay here dealers. You have significantly more competition for inventory and a declining inventory, especially in that sweet spot of that zero to five or six year old vehicles. I mean, I think that 16.1 million uh, in 2022 or 2021, and it's going to be, we're looking uh, you know, by 2026 being down to, I think, 12. So you're looking at a 4 million unit drop in supply. Oh, is that used cars you're referring used to? Used cars, used cars. Zero, that zero to five year old uh, category, which is the prime, you know, category for used cars, right? So. And what, what that, that number you provided, what is that? Is that on dealer lots? What, what are these cars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, that will be the available inventory that's out there. Uh, Got it. That everyone's going to be In fighting category. over. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. So you're saying that that segment, like the five to six year old is going to keep declining. Yes. Roughly by another like 20 plus percent over the next couple of years. Yeah. And that's going to be, you know, and that data, I think both S&P Global and Wards and JD Power, Cox all have similar data to that. So, you know, what that means, I think we're not going to see a crash of used car valuations in that category. Uh, you know, you're going to see some fluctuating, you know, in terms of the levels, wholesale levels, but I don't think there's going to be any massive decline there. Part of that's going to be determined by what happens, you know, with used car, or with new cars. I frankly think we'll start seeing more incentives coming on soon the new car side. On new car side. And depending on the brand, I mean, Toyota is still pretty lean, but everyone else seems to be getting pretty fat. And it just, it cracks me up because. You know, a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about product discipline, production discipline, and we're not going back to the incentive era. You know, we're going to keep a lid on our production. Those of us who have been around a while laughed at those why, comments. Why do, why because, do you laugh at that? Uh, you just, it's, you can't give up that market share. <laughs> you can't. So I don't care how much profit you're making. And, and you got to keep your, your, listen, you have the thing with the UAW, you got to keep your plants running. They have to be running at a certain level to maintain profitability, you know, and you, you're talking 88, 90% probably capacity. You know, you have investors, you know, Wall Street that hammers you if you start losing share. And and all it takes is one to 
to to go down that route and everyone else is going to start to follow. And I think the Koreans are incredibly opportunistic in their mindset in finding ways they can create or gain market share. So they're definitely going to play that game. Mm. And and I, so, so you're pretty much in the camp of we're going to see more incentives. New car prices will come down. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we, we've seen on the EV side already, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ford just knocked, what, $10,000 off the Lightning. Um, Tesla's been playing a game. Obviously, he's applying pressure. Tesla is applying pressure to the other manufacturers on the EV side. But what we're going to see, I think, is... It's going to be brand by brand. I think uh, incentives are going to be more market-based, focused, targeted, as opposed to national. We're going to see an ebb of flow. And I think we're going to see a, a world in which cutting and raising prices on vehicles is going to be a, uh, a part of the landscape now. So if we're going to see more incentives, which I think makes sense, I'm, I'm not in the camp of like, hey, we're not going to see more incentives. Because the OEMs, I mean, car manufacturers have learned that they should keep supply low and profits remain high. I just don't think, again, I'm, I'm, I, I, a free market doesn't work that way. I don't exactly. see it. To your right. point, like someone is going to, you know, someone is going to, they're, they're going to jump the gun and start, you know, lowering prices or whatever. And then everyone has to follow it, just how a free market works. But how is that going to impact then the used car side, right? Like obviously new cars compete with used cars to a certain extent. And so sure. what do you think the, the outlook looks like for, for the used car business? Because you mentioned that valuations likely won't crash because there's such a shortage, but will this then actually reduce demand for the used cars? Yeah, sure. But again, I think when you're looking at the number, the, the, the inventory levels, getting to the level of what we're talking about, 12 million or so, there, there's still going to be a healthy demand. I, I will say this. We are entering a period, and I wrote in 2018, column talking about the uncertainty that the auto industry was going to encounter over the next several years. And we're why right what, what did you see period. back then? Well just uh and, and I think it's an uncertainty that we've never seen before in the space. And it was being brought on by things such as the connected vehicle uh and I'm not talking necessarily right uh self driving or autonomous. I'm talking about software defined vehicles as the term is now becoming and in electric vehicles. And we we're starting to see the big prognostications. Now, this was before COVID when I wrote this, but now we are right. I think I, I look at it as a hurricane. That, yeah, we're seeing a hurricane offshore. We're seeing all the potential pads that it, that the hurricane can take. We just don't know where it's going to hit. So we're staying here in South Florida and we're watching. You no know, one knows exactly where it's going to hit. Well, now we're starting to feel the winds much stronger. What are the winds? Well, EV sales. What about them? The, the big question is. Will the customers buy? Are the customers going to get on board? That's the big question. Uh, you're saying you're like without like government incentives and whatnot? Well, go, well, even with government incentives, even with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that the, the and, and I don't think anyone has an answer yet or knows fully how it's going to play out. I mean, there's some scary possibilities here. Like what? Uh, well, when I say scary, all right, so so let's look at different scenarios. Let's say EV sales take off. Let's say GM is incredibly successful with its launch of the Equinox, which is going to happen. I mean, they just now this week started rolling out the EV Blazer, Trailblazer, uh, off the line and going into dealership lots. Let's say Ford figures out some of their challenges, Volkswagen. I mean, some of these players. And let's say EV sales become the uh, 
become the dominant vehicle of choice for the market over the next five years. All right. Wow. What, ha I mean, what does that do across the board? I, it's going to have a significant impact on dealers, uh, on, on the retail market. Now, we can get it. We can get into that later. I don't think the dealers are going away by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I think there is going to impact that market significantly. I think uh, the whole how 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 will it impact the market though? You're going to. Uh, I think you could see. I, I, we, we know there's going to be an impact on service operations. Now, do I think it's going to happen over in five years? No, I don't, because you have right now 283, almost 300 vehicles, used vehicles that aren't EV that are on the road today, there's, there's enough market out there on the service side for dealers to, to capture if they got serious. But again, it's, it's going to impact. Here's what I think some of the impact is going to be. Let's first of all, EVs, I think it could change some of the way we own our concepts of ownership. There's a lot of, you've written about this and you've talked a lot about the vehicle subscription. You had Scott Painter on a while ago. I'm not a, I, I love the concept. I'm skeptical of it because we had a first round of it at one point, you know, a few years ago that failed, flamed out miserably, including one of Scott's uh, earlier companies, Fair. AutoNation just now launched its micro uh, leasing uh, AutoNation mobility in two states this week or last week. But when you have an EV, it's it's really going to become a question of the evaluations. And I'm trying to paint the picture here. If EVs become the dominant vehicle, it's going to upend everything we know about vehicle valuations. That whole that whole world's going to be up. I know banks and lenders are looking very hard at it, trying to figure out how that happens, what that's going to look like a few years out. But, but, but is that really an issue? Like, isn't that already the case? I mean, we're already selling, you know, tons of EVs. No, we're not. No, we're, we're wet. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, you, you have the Tesla's out there. I, there's not a ton of others. It's Tesla and, you know, everyone else combined right now. We, we don't have enough yet to determine, to see. We're, we're still so very early in on this whole EV dynamic, number one. Number two, there's a lot going on on the battery side in terms of development. It could make all the batteries that are on the road today obsolete. You know, that's a big question mark. I think you could see a world in which the battery that, you know, the, the, it's separate to the, the valuation of the battery is separate from the actual vehicle. I don't know. I mean, there's... There's a lot of different scenarios being kicked around, but I do think that oh, that's wow. going to upend. I think that's, that's an interesting end. one. I haven't yeah. heard that one before. Yeah. I mean, well, the battery is going to become the uh, battery health and we don't have enough data on on that. And, and I think it's going to be manufactured by manufacturer. And then, and then let's say the EVs don't play out. Let's say it becomes, it's where it is today and no more. Well, these OEMs, they have made huge investments. They're going to eat a lot of those costs. And it's going to be painful for a little bit. I mean, they'll they'll manage because I. Think I mean, one still... could say they're already eating tons of costs, like on the fourth well, side. They, well, yeah. they are right now. But let's say that none of this plays out, pans out. Let's say that all that money that they've invested goes to waste because the customer doesn't want to buy. You know what what happens to their value? You know, in terms of Wall Street, so in... putting I would say other than EVs. I mean, you mentioned these hurricanes. Like, do you think there? What else is on the horizon from what you're seeing? Like, what other big things are out there? Well, you have the software-defined vehicle, uh, which if manufacturers are able to get their data structures in place, uh, and when I say that, mo most of the manufacturers are, you know, their data structures are siloed, incredibly siloed, and it's just very hard to merge all that together. But hey, let's take a connected vehicle, and I've talked about this at conferences numerous times, but 
you know, down the road, you could have, let's say the connected vehicle is, uh, all of the systems are able to talk to each other and that data is able to be aggregated into a cloud-based connected vehicle platform. So take Ford, for example, they could have, they could be grabbing data from all of the vehicles that they have on the road from all the various systems, braking systems, the engine systems, uh, you know, whatever, telemat, whatever. And it's being fed into a, uh, you know, a, a platform, a data platform. So they have all that. They'll have all the customer data. They'll have all the vehicle data. And what could they do with that? And what does that do, you know, at the dealership level today, the dealers have that data, control that data. Well, at some point, I see the manufacturers controlling that data because they all have access that they, and they have data that they've never had before. How does that change the game a little bit? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if a Pollyannis view would be, you know, manufacturer has, uh, has figured out a way to take that data. The vehicle is able to talk to the customer. Let's say I'm in my Ford uh, F-150 and it says, you know, I get in one day and it says Cliff verbally, it's using, you know, whatever the AI large language model, whatever it is. And it says, Cliff, we're going to need new front brakes in about a month and a half. ABC Motors has a slot open on Wednesday at 5.30. Would you like to set an appointment? By the way, you know, it knows that I prefer a loaner vehicle. Uh, so it'll have the loaner vehicle and the type of loaner vehicle that I want. They're waiting for me. Uh, or depending on the pay, you could sell any kind of VIP platinum package. And, you know, the, the dealer comes out and gets the vehicle for, you know, for me and drops it back off or comes out to my office and fixes it. You know, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of scenarios there, but the point is if, if that connected vehicle platform is able to tie it all together, the retailers, the vehicle, the manufacturer, the, the supplier, the shipper, all of that, and it's able to leverage AI and predictive models that tell me that it knows when my brakes are going to go or when I'm going to need new brakes. What I mean, that's a wild customer experience. That, that's incredible. That's what I would. So, who captures the value there? Like, is there a world for well, startups? I don't know. That's the, that's, <laughs> uh, that's how does that come? So, I mean, you yeah, know, like, you, do, exactly. Do the OEMs, the car manufacturers, capture the value, or can startups say, you know, build these types of things and you know they get acquired or they build yeah. into it? Well, look, I mean, we're seeing, you know, we've seen a startup, Techion, which is a DMS startup out of uh, California. Um, they're making a play to be the one that ties all of this together for the, especially on the dealership side. Um, you know, CDK has, you know, a, a platform that they've been building and touting. Um, I think the manufacturer stands to gain the most here. Really? Uh, but again, it has to, but yeah, I mean, it, because they'll have the data and they'll be able to communicate with the customers in a way that no one is able to communicate and it's via through the vehicle. Now look, we're seeing elements of this already, but I'm talking now whole perspective that I just painted. I mean, I think that's still a ways out because you know, you, you have to, there, there's a lot that has to be done, but we're, we're getting there in steps. But what, what does that world look like? Ultimately? I don't know. I mean, but, but that does change the whole tech landscape. I think at the dealership level, it changes how dealerships communicate, will communicate with their customers. It's going to require a much more collaborative approach between dealers and manufacturers. And again, I don't know that we get there because of the, you know, hundred years of history of dealer manufacturer relationships that are, um, you know, that 
that are been fraught with distrust and, uh, you know, I think well-earned animosity, you know, even from both sides. So I feel like there's an opportunity here. I just had someone in the pod recently, a guy named John Hayes, he's building a company called Ghost Autonomy. And they're, they're sort of looking to create this, uh, almost like self-driving that can be equipped to any manufacturer or, you know, licensed to any manufacturer. So it makes me think that like there's an opportunity, like every manufacturer is going to try to do what you're saying for their own vehicle, for their own line. But it makes me think that, you know, is there an opportunity to build this like one universal platform that you can hook on to any car and get that level of personalization and integration? I know that, you know, I also had um, Fullpath CEO our own on the pod. Yes. And he yep. spoke about, you know, AI and, and working on do that for, for the sales process. But this seems like this falls more in the ownership side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, change, it changes the whole ownership. And listen, maybe at some point you have these, uh, you know, the Scott Painters of the world, which end up uh, being correct in a few years that the whole idea of ownership changes and becomes less of a, you know, my vehicle versus, you know, short term lease or a uh you know how shared... realistic do you think that is do you think i don't that's think it, like I, no, I don't think it's real no i don't think it's viable at all because Why? the psyche of the american consumer the psyche public, of the american that's the american consumer well think <laughs> about this you know you got a car in your garage right yeah and i mean you're in my stage in life i mean i, I don't have car seats anymore but do i want to keep changing car seats out you know they, i love these analysts that would in uh, futurist that would talk about the vehicle being used only four or five percent of the time and being parked the rest of the time. Why do you love that? My, my argument is if vehicles in my garage, that vehicle's in use, even if it's not, even if the wheels aren't moving. It's got my golf clubs, lawn chairs in the back, it's got the car seat, it's holding my trash today. Was too lazy to take out of you know the vehicle last night. It's in use. Now if I'm having to share a vehicle with you know, and rely on autonomous coming to pick me up all the time and I'm giving up ownership. We don't have that. The American well, it seems consumer, like it's a, it seems like it's a convenience and luxury thing. Um, and the reason I even use that word luxury for car ownership is because I spoke about the average new, the average payment on a new car nowadays is close to $750. And, you know, add insurance on top of that, you know, you're over $1,000 a month. Is that sustainable though, right? Like are people are going to have like what everything you're saying is definitely ideal. Like I love that as well, right? Car seats are in the car. I'm not going to, you know, it takes me 20 minutes to install those damn car seats, but I mean, I can't imagine, you know, moving them and let alone getting some other car seat that some other, you know, kid used that's probably dirty. My wife is not going to want to put a baby in that. <laughs> so I can only, I can only imagine these like five, 10 steps. But with that said, is that just, is that going to turn into a luxury? Like, will people have no choice where it's just like, hey, new cars are just so unaffordable. Like, yeah. I have to yeah. subscribe and it's the more affordable option. And then boom, 30% of the population is subscribing. Right. Look, I'll go back to when I was living in Philadelphia in the late 80s, and I was a teen, late, you know, late teenager, late 80s, early 90s, and uh, or through 1990. And I didn't know I took public transportation. I jumped on SEPTA. I jumped on the subway. Broad Street Line every night. Um, took the 26 bus down Rising Sun Avenue. You know, um, so I was, you know, I uh, I was living that life in 1987, 88, 89, 90. I, so I didn't need a car once. And I was 20, I think, just turned 20 when I bought my first car. You listen, but I think historically, 
five years ago, we'll go back five years and cars were what, 35? But if you went back 20, 30 years, it would have been unfathomable that we would have been paying 35000 40000 for a new car, right? So society has a way of adjusting to costs. Well, wages have risen as well. Yeah. By, you know, not necessarily at the same pace, but yeah. Correct. But I think that, that we, we would likely see a similar dynamic. People are going to hold on to their old cars. We're seeing that. I mean, the used car age is, you know, significantly older than what it was even 10 years ago. So we're seeing, look, I've got it, you know, in my driveway right now, I got a 2007 uh, Ford Fusion with 212,000 miles on it. You know, it's one of our vehicles. We've got, uh, you know, we have a few, but that's one of the, one of our vehicles. And I, it's become a joke, a running joke with me now that I'm trying to, I'm going to try and keep that going as long as I can. So I'm putting money into it just as a, see how far I keep that going. But you know, oh, wow. I, you know, should I go, you know, can make the case. That's already pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think we may see more of that, but we were still up until the pandemic, we were selling 55 about 55 million vehicles a year at the dealership level, both franchise and independent use cars. That's new and used cars. Mm-hmm. 55, that, that, that was the typical year. I think we'll get back to that at some point. What are we at now? Uh, boy, uh, what are we going to hit? 15 million this year? year for, I'm, I'm getting old, so my memory's off. I think we're on pace to hit 15 million new cars. New only. Year. Yeah. New only, new only. And I said, I think I wrote on one of your tweet mm-hmm. Twitter threads. I I think I wrote that uh, we'll get sixty what sixteen million in twenty four, and you know maybe seventeen million back by twenty five. I don't know. I mean, I'm I was being somewhat tongue in cheek there, but I think it's in, it's entirely possible. And what about used? What are we on track for used right now? Boy, that's a I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but uh, but you know, given like I said, in a given year, you know, you're looking at. Uh, 15, 16, I think on the, maybe 14 to 15 on the new car franchise side in terms of being sold out of new car dealerships, the rest being sold out of used car, independent used car dealerships. So that's a lot of vehicles. And, and there's still some pen, there's still a lot of pent up demand. But we're not seeing that demand dissipate right now on the new car side. I mean, you, you, you had Jonathan Smoke on a few weeks ago uh, from Cox, the Cox uh, economist. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I, some of it is colored by, you know, when we came out of the recession in 2009, 2010, 2011, and we thought it was going to take forever to get back to that 16 million unit level. And it, in no time, we were hitting 17 million new car sales. So we were, granted, different dynamics today, but uh, am I more Pollyannish or rosy in my forecast? I, Yeah, maybe. But some of that is because we've seen this, a lot of this before, nothing, none, none of this is new. Maybe the increased, you know, the explosion in new car prices. But I would say some of that is based on, you know, it's out of whack because the electric vehicles. And we've had so many of these new car vehicles, you know, priced above MSRP because of the, because there hasn't been the supply. Supply is going to come back to a, rather normal level. And then we're already seeing these prices come down. So I think some of that's going to write itself out. You mentioned supply, you know, publicly traded auto groups are near all-time highs, their stocks. Yeah. What do you think happens here next with these groups? 
Well, I can tell you over the last 10 years, it's been in ebb and flow up and down. Okay. However, the ups always end up being greater than the downs, which is why we are seeing consistently them hitting their highest prices. You know, the share prices are hitting their highest levels for the most part. I mean, there's a, does that trend continue? Certainly appears that. I mean, it, you know, net income is coming down. I think the, what we've seen in the last most recent earnings around for second quarter, the net income has, has, uh, decreased across the board, but correct. Uh, revenues are up. I think sales are up. They've hit record, record quarters and they keep saying records on that level. So, you know, even if, even with net income coming down, it's still way above pre pandemic levels. So can they maintain that? Probably not, but, uh, you know, I, you know, stock prices, one, only one metric to look at. I mean, you have to look at the total return. What do you look at when you, when you look through these SEC reports, what do you really focus on? What the trend levels are. And I try to not look at it so much from quarter to quarter, but more year over year. You know, you, you look for any massive red flags. And, and it's interesting. We talked that you mentioned Sonic with the Echo Park. There were some... There were some red flags going back over a year, just in terms of the profitability and the fact that they weren't, the Echo Park stores weren't exactly profitable. And you're wondering how much longer could that go on? And weren't the Echo Park stores at Sonic, weren't they doing like front end on the, like the profit on the car was like $500 or something like that, 300 bucks? Yeah. Something pretty, very, pretty small. Yeah. And I don't think they were, I mean, I, I looked at it. Prior to the second, or I, we're going back three or four weeks, and I wish I'd written down um, or had it in front of me, actually. But uh, you just go back to the car. I just remember thinking as I listened to those earnings calls each year, each quarter, you know, look, they're going to have to do something with Echo Park. Um, and I think Sonic's, you know, done a great job. But boy, I'll tell you this it's, it's funny watching, tracking these companies, and you just see some of the differences in mindset in strategy. You know, AutoNation has reduced its share, no, volume, number of shares by almost a hundred. I mean, you know, they've been very aggressive at buying back shares. Lithia, on the other hand, has been very aggressive on the, on the acquisition side. So two different, completely two different strategies. Both, you know, are trying to do different things, go outside the typical franchise dealer model and start adding things, you know, AutoNation bought RepairPal, they bought the bank, they launched AutoNation Superstores, which again is a resurrection of what they were doing prior to the or late 90s when Mike Jackson was named CEO. And they were a group of used car superstores and he immediately got rid of those. Well, now they've come back and restarted that. We'll see how long that stays in play. Uh, certainly, if you're looking at Echo Park, you're, you're thinking, uh, yeah, maybe this massive use car play that these dealers try occasionally are not just they just don't end up not penciling because they they've never seem to be sustainable we've seen this time and time again so but and then and then you take a group one which is fascinating to me because uh as a group because they are solely focused on selling and servicing vehicles in their local market areas they are not at all interested in shipping vehicles across the country nationally or to different markets. That's why they're super profitable. Exactly. 
it's a phenomenal. I mean, and it's just the nuts and bolts. It's just a basic, boring business model. But you look at their profitability, you look at them as a company, and it's it's hard to argue with, right? You know, and then obviously Lithia's had the stock price that's been you know as high as four hundred at one point. Now it's back down to earth. Uh, Group One, air, ironically, passed it earlier this year for maybe a week or two, yeah. and Lithia regained the crowd. But that was the first time in years that uh, that someone other than Lithia held that crown. I'm, I'm bullish. I'm bullish on, I think they, they all bring something to the table. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you, uh, I want to talk about a bit of a different topic. Sure. Which is just automotive media. Yes. How do you think automotive media is going to continue evolving? It just seems like, and I, I, I'll, I'll say my opinions first. I want to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems like, you know, we're sort of ushering in this new generation of automotive leaders, whether it be new management, you know, Gen Z, you know, getting into the industry, whatever it may be, uh, it just seems like media is being consumed differently. I'm really curious to hear from you, though. Automotive media, you know, you've been in it for, for decades. How do you think it's going to change and evolve over the next five to 10 years? Well, I've lived through some of those changes, uh, some of them painful, some of them not. Uh, the, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. Look, I, live, I don't live in the world of the consumer media, so I don't really... Put the consumer aside. Don't even worry yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So automotive is, is fascinating. When you look at the landscape of media properties, the other big one's automotive news. Wartz has a different audience somewhat, but he's still our competitive with automotive news. It's a different model today. Then we have all of these. So you've got all the dealer publications that are still out there. Uh, auto remarketing, uh, dealer success, dealer marketing, auto dealer today. I, it's hard to, um, and much of that is focused on best practices, helping dealers manage their businesses and managers and executives manage their businesses. So you have that whole element. And, uh, you know, and I don't play at all in that world. I just, I don't have the, the, the knowledge to talk about best practices in the dealership world. Uh, I leave that to people that are in the dealership and the vendors who are helping dealers with, you know, mm -hmm. manage those. So I, I tend to be more analysis driven, more, uh, more big picture focused uh, under, and even under the radar focused. Um, so, but, so I think, you know, in, in, look, I have a conference. I think that's part of the whole media set. You have, uh, um, multiple numerous conferences out there and every once in a while someone will complain about the number of conferences and my response is look as many as the market can bear if you don't want to go to a car you don't go to a conference don't you know why complain about it just don't go i mean you know uh, as long as the sponsors are willing to step up and foot and help foot that bill and people are willing to to buy that plane ticket and uh, show up you know and i think it's everyone's trying to find where that sweet spot is i think i've carved a niche and uh which works and we may we may see a car dealership guy conference yeah yeah, in 2024. yeah, yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we will i'd be shocked if we didn't uh, yeah if you're listening to the pod and you have conference yes. experience you know who to you know who to contact i'm waiting i'm waiting <laughs> for your dm <laughs> yeah but we you know we we have ours in december in scottsdale and it's not you know seamless plug here i guess but you know we're just yeah, go for it we're, we're very it. Uh, i'm i'm not intent on on growing those numbers exponentially, you know, we are at 200. This will be our seventh year and it's been the 150 that, you know, we hit our record attendance last year and probably hit that 250 to 300 mark this year. But I don't want it. To, I, I, it's a very exclusive, spend a lot of, we spend a lot of money on that event, a lot of money. 
So it's a different, uh, it's a little bit different than some of the other events in terms of what the focus is. It's not best practice focus. It's more investor and investment focused, I think. Uh, but in terms of where the media, where media is going, we had this conversation with our people recently. You know, we're talking about social media channels and I have no interest whatsoever in TikTok, Instagram. I found out I had an Instagram account. I had no, I have no idea how I have an Instagram account. I'd never set it up. Someone told me it was through Facebook. That's how ignorant I am of that. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I have a Facebook account, but I've done much. I use it just for Intel, essentially. But uh, but I know there's a huge number of. Uh, You're the all all stake and no sizzle. <laughs> but but the, you know, right, right, yeah. I've been accused of, of having very little sizzle. So no, I'm I'm saying that I'm saying that like jokingly because you well, know, no, like, no, you, you just keep it real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try. Well. Look, I got to differentiate myself somewhere. I can't keep up with guys like you. Honestly, I can't. Hey, you come into this and have grown exponentially. You've exploded onto the scene. And your content is your content is sound. Your content is, you have a, a knack for generating responses and getting people engaged. And that is phenomenal. I mean, it's been fun to watch. Yeah, look, you know, I think a couple of things. Number one, it took about a year of yeah. daily, daily tweeting before I, I started like, you know, growing. But anyway, it took me like a year before it was around December, January of 20, what are, you, what are we now? 23 years. Yeah. It was around yeah. the end of 22 when yeah. I would say it's really started rising. But what people don't know is it's, it's nonstop. Like it's, it's a type of thing where, you know, I'm in the bathroom, I'm eating, I'm on my phone. It's, it's so accessible but you're always trying to fill in those like dead five minutes because it's a full-time job. Yes. It just takes a lot of work. Um, now that said, I'm definitely a student of the media, media space, meaning I love to just, you know, try new things, new formats, new writing styles, and just to see how people react. Um, I try to keep things super, super balanced. It's really tough though, because you're always upsetting someone. You say one thing, the consumers get upset at you. Oh, you this. You say one thing, the dealers are upset at you. I'm not perfect either. Um, you know, people people don't realize. You know, it's uh, sometimes you're tweeting. I don't think I've scheduled a tweet in a while. Like I don't even remember the last time I scheduled a tweet. I do have drafts. Like I do, I will have a draft, and I'll just like you know go in and, and post it. But pre-scheduling, I stopped doing that uh, a couple months ago, just because I enjoy more diet, like raw, organic. You know, kind of hey, yeah, like what's right. interesting to me right now. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, it's very, very intense. I think that's also a big part of what separates, um, you know, the, the the accounts that grow from those that don't. But also, you, you have to keep a well-diversified, you know, uh, a well-diversified content and to try to bring stuff that's actually interesting to people. And it's hard. You know, you're constantly looking for, for interesting things and you don't always have them. That's why you see some days I go and I don't tweet or maybe I tweet once. Other days I'll tweet five times. Uh, but it's definitely fun and fulfilling. The podcast has taken it to a new level and I really enjoy this. To kind of sum all that up, I just think that it's a constant evolution of transparency. I think the level of transparency we're at now is, you know, first we had transparency of like, you know, websites, said prices, then TrueCar came. Right. And I just feel like now we're at a level of transparency where it's sharing the, the ins and outs of the industry. And frankly, you see the dealers that embrace it are doing well, especially the ones that follow me that are, you know, engaging with the audience that, 
you know, maybe I'll talk, maybe I'll speak about something, interest rates, prices, monthly payment, whatever, inventory. And a dealer will come in and chime in and say, oh, by the way, we just, you know, we just sold this or that, or they'll just share an ad anecdote from their experience. And then people in the comments like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm looking for this type of car. Can right. I contact you? So you see real business happening yes. Um, yes. in the comments, which is pretty remarkable. So I just think that we're, you know, I, I think things are going to continue getting more transparent, but I think it's going to benefit everyone because it's not, I, I just don't, don't, I don't view it as a harmful transparency, meaning it's not, it's not about like, you know, I gotchas or, you know, putting consumers down, putting dealers down. It's about just, Hey, let, let's keep it real. This is what the landscape looks like. This is how the business works. This is the reality of the current automotive landscape. And now you have the information, go make your choices, go make your own decisions. Right. Well, I think someone like you, I mean, what you've done too has been that you've been able to shine a light and provide, you use that word transparency. What I've noticed for you on how the business actually works and what's going on at the dealership level and what drives, you know, some of what, you know, some of the, the behavior at the dealership level too. And I think that's great for the consumer uh, to, to be able to see, to be able to see and understand, have a better understanding there. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, I lived through 2000s awards and we were gatekeepers, automotive news awards. And then there were a couple of other magazines that popped out and came out, but we were, you know, gatekeepers of the information and that's been completely obliterated uh in terms of uh you know i think now social media is demise completely democratized and i think that's been great i think but it's also been rough and challenging too because there's a lot of people that don't really understand what they're out there talking about or saying you know it's funny i you know i i i'm on seeking alpha quite a bit and it's just amazing some of the things that i see there that are uh I think you you bring up a good point about gatekeeping because I feel like at this point I I can do in a day it really depends on the day but I can do like three million views per day impressions right now and I think about that I'm like it's just it's incredible that this is all you know free right like I built the audience the audience is mine yeah um, or you know to a certain extent it's the platforms of course but you know I'm renting it for free. And the, the idea that you're right, like there's no gatekeeping with social media if you're able to build a proper audience. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing to note is just that the responsibility that comes with that. And yes. I definitely, you know, as time has gone by, you know, you think more and more like how everything you say actually impacts people. Uh, and you realize like I have people following up with me after months like, hey, I just bought a Buick because of your tweet. And like I start laughing because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting with like a, a crying baby on one arm. <laughs> drinking drinking a soda on the other arm and i'm like oh by the way let me talk about you know buick this is interesting and you know months later i have people telling me that their family just got a great deal on a buick because of my tweet and it's just so crazy the impact yeah uh, of social media nowadays you know you've you've evolved too you've grown significantly from when you first start i think in terms of i just in terms of being respond and and, and i say this with uh, just admiration and and as a compliment, I mean, you, you have really, I, I think from where you were when you started to where you are today in, in terms of understanding that responsibility of being, you know, someone that's a voice in the industry and trying to make sure you get it right and, and, and understand things that you don't understand. I mean, you're, you're trying, you know, you, you ask great questions and, uh, uh, you, like I said, I mean, you, the, the level of engagement you get is, uh, you know, I think if I was, if I was a, a um, at your age now, and I'm significantly older. I mean, I, you know, I, you, you would be a model I would follow on that. I think in terms well, of building out media, 
media scene, uh, property. Yeah, so. and it, it's a constant learning process. And, um, and like you said, yeah, hundred percent. I was, uh, you know, more rough around the edges. <laughs> I've definitely cleaned well, up that. <laughs> you know, I, I think the, the, the guests that you have on, uh, so it, it's just, it, it shows that you are a student of the industry. And I think today people are student, true students of the industry and uh, are, are willing to be, uh, to understand that the responsibility that they have, if they become a voice, I think that, and there's few, there's not many. I mean, <laughs> I think there's too many that are willing to be a voice without being a true student there, you know, and I think those of us that are students end up probably wielding the most influence over time. So, you know, and I, I, I like to say, I've just, I'm just a guy that's been around a long time and have seen a lot and, you know, had a little bit of a knack for writing. And you keep it humble. You know, I, well, you know, I, I understand my role. Yeah. I know where I'm at. So, well, Cliff, this has been super fun, very insightful. Where can, if someone wants to learn more about you, Bank Support, where can they? Yeah, bankshapport.com, autovate.org are the websites. You follow me on LinkedIn and on Twitter, you know. Um, Love it. You know, and those are the really Twitter and LinkedIn, only two social media places for me. Uh, yeah, but we, we've got a newsletter and a podcast now, which we've launched, I've launched uh, somewhat begrudgingly over the last uh, couple months. Uh, so I'm learning, I, you know, I, I have a certain idea of how the podcast, how I want the podcast to be, you know, so we'll, we'll see. It's a, I, I'm content to Listen, learn. We're all figuring this out as we go. We are. We I, are. I started this after a phone call with a buddy just for fun, used GarageBand. <laughs> and, you know, I was talking about some consumer topics and then I got to a point I said, hmm, I need more content. And then I, you know, started bringing on guests and it just got interesting. And here we are today. So it's just a constant evolution. And so we'll see where, you know, we'll see what happens in one, two, three years. Well, keep it up. This has been fun to watch. Appreciate it, Cliff. Well, Cliff, thanks for coming on. It's been awesome. And uh, we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.